take our Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 3. As we've been in our study, uh, chapter 1 is the things that you have seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. And beginning in chapter 4 through the end of the book, that will be the things that will be after these things. And as over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the seven churches to whom Jesus communicated with for the things that are. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to finish those churches. And the two at which we're going to look, Philadelphia and Laodicea, probably cannot have more polar opposites. One, there's no criticism. The other has no commendation whatsoever. One has an open door set before it that no one can shut. The other has a door at which Jesus stands knocking. And so they cannot, frankly, they cannot be more different. Let's pray. Father, it is a sobering passage that we come to today. That there would be a church with which you are pleased, that knows and understands suffering firsthand, and yet is being faithful, and yet at the same time, in another location that's not that distant, there's another for which you're ready to vomit them out. It's sobering to think that there would be something calling itself a church that would actually actually be in danger of standing before you in judgment. And so, Father, help us this morning as we come to this that we would look at the faces of our own natures as we come to your word, that we may see ourselves as your word would expose us to be, and that in seeing that where we need to, that we would quickly repent and do as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come down, come and bow down to your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, again, as we continue in the horseshoe, going around beginning at Ephesus, going to Smyrna, going to Pergamum, going over to Thyatira, Sardis, and now we continue down to the southeast about 28 miles and we reach 
the city, the old city of Philadelphia, which is modern-day Alhazar in Turkey. Now, this city was founded by Attalus Philadelphus, and he named the city Philadelphia in honor of his brother. They were very close, and so that is where the city got its name. It was intended to be a missionary city, but not for Christ. It was intended to be a missionary city for Hellenism. Now, Hellenism, okay, I've got a good. You've communicated to me without even saying a word. I saw a scowl. What is Hellenism? Hellenism was the, um, the putting forward of the Greek manner of living. So, for instance, you'll remember uh, in the book of Acts, in chapter 6, there was a problem in the early church. And the problem in the early church was that the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jewish widows, were being neglected in the, actually the Greek widows were, the Greek Jewish, they were being neglected in the daily ministration of food. And that's actually where the deacons come from, right? And so this idea of um, this city was it was to be the launching point for people spreading the Greek way of life throughout Persia. Now, Philadelphia was um, a volcanic region. And so because it was volcanic, you had volcanic ash that would come down and that made the ground outside the city very fertile. Now, because it was volcanic, it also meant that the city was also subject to something else. What would that be? Well, lava, if you have an actual eruption, what do you typically see around volcanoes? Earthquakes. And so the city is prone to earthquakes. And because it's prone to earthquakes, a lot of people who lived in Philadelphia didn't actually spend time in Philadelphia inside the city limits. They went out. So they're members of the city, but they live outside of town because it's safer out there in the wider open spots. The city was renamed twice. Now, it held on to Philadelphia over the years, but when they were destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD, they received help from Caesar in order to rebuild the city. And in appreciation for that aid from Rome, they renamed the city for a time Neo Caesarea, New Caesar, New Caesarville. And they did it again later um, in the first century they renamed it for Tiberius's wife. So uh, Tiberius Caesar, his wife's name was Flavia, and for a time they called Philadelphia Flavia. And so they were used to having the city renamed. It was interesting that uh, outside the city where the volcanic ash was, was known as the burnt land. Very fertile, but also very distinctive. And there was a significant Jewish presence in Philadelphia. This letter, more than any of the other letters, is, has Jewish references throughout. And we will actually go through and look at some of them. Now, Jesus actually does things a little differently with his introduction here, where he introduces himself. This is the first letter that we're going to encounter where he doesn't give a verbatim tie back to chapter 1. There is a tie to chapter 1, but you've you got to read a little bit more between the lines. It's going to go back to chapter 1, verse 5, where it talks about he is the faithful witness. He describes himself as he who is holy, he who is true. We'll stop there with those two. He who is holy, the Holy One was a common reference for God in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is immediately 
he is asserting his deity. You'll run into that 20 times just in the book of Isaiah. He's going to quote from Isaiah frequently in this letter. He's going to reference Isaiah frequently. And so holy regards his deity. True is a, an interesting word from the Greek perspective. This word for true has the idea of being genuine. From the Hebrew perspective, it is the idea of trustworthy. Now this idea of holy and true, we're gonna run into in the letter to Laodicea, and we're also gonna run into it later in the book. We'll talk about that more when we do Laodicea here in a few minutes. He also refers to himself as having the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Leave your finger in Revelation and turn back to Isaiah chapter 22. This particular section of the book of Isaiah is a, is a series of visions that Isaiah has. Chapter 22 is the valley of vision. And so this is an oracle. This is a, um, a prophecy regarding the valley of vision. And let's go down to verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. So Shebna is the guy who controls access to the royal household. He's in a position of power. He's in a position of authority. What right do you have here, and whom do you have here, that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here, you who hew a tomb on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man, and he is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be your shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely around him, about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Hold on to that concept of a peg. Now again, in a tent, when you, when you drove in a peg, that was something that you could hang things off of. And so it was, it was actually part of the structural support of the tent, but it was an idea that it was something that you, it was uh, planted well enough that you could hang something off of, but again, it's a peg. So we have the idea that the key of David is being placed on his shoulder. Now does that ring any other bells for you? And I'll give you a hint. It's from Isaiah of something being placed on his shoulder. The government, right, Isaiah 9-6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? And the government will be upon his shoulder. And so the idea here is that Jesus is, he's already claimed in chapter one that he has the keys of Hades and of death. He has control, he has power over Hades and death. Now he's asserting, I have control over salvation as well. I have control over that. So he continues. Verse 8, I know your deeds. I know your works. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied 
my name. I can remember many years ago, we used to do a Thanksgiving play every year. And one of the characters that was in the Thanksgiving play was a fellow by the name of Miles Standish. I still remember a comment about Miles Standish from that. He was one of the pilgrims. Though he be small, yet he is good in a fight. Now, why I remember that, I don't know. But the church at Philadelphia, though they be small, they're good in a fight. They have been faithful. They understand persecution by experience. They know what that is. And yet, they haven't turned aside from God's word. And they haven't denied his name. They're being faithful. Later on, he's going to say, because you have obeyed the command of my perseverance. They're hanging in there. They have got a grip on grace. And they are not turning loose. And so again, though they be few, that's the idea of little power. Literally, micros dunamis, micro power, is literally how it's played, how it's how it's phrased. And they've got opposition, just as we saw this back in Smyrna, for which again they understood persecution, and they had a significant persecution by the Jewish. Uh, population there. So we have in Philadelphia, you have a synagogue. And again, it's referred to as a synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews and are not, but they lie. It was interesting in my reading this week, I came across something. I had not seen this before. After the second temple was destroyed, there was a text that was written, and it had a number of manuscripts. It had 18 different benedictions. These are Jewish benedictions. One of them says this, for the apostates, let there be no hope and uproot the kingdom of arrogance speedily and in our days. May the Nazarenes and the sectarians perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written together with the righteous. You are praised, O Lord, who subdues the arrogant. That was a Jewish prayer against Christians. The idea, so again, you can see, and especially you can see how this would take place after 70 AD. Once you hit 70 AD, what happens in Jerusalem? The temple's destroyed, right? When the temple is destroyed, what happens to Jewish culture? It's it's irrevocably changed. Remember, Jewish culture centered on Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, it's centered on the temple. That's where the sacrifices were done. That's where God dwelt, although the Ark of the Covenant was gone by then. And so they didn't have the Shekinah glory anymore. The idea being that everything for them was changed. And who did they hold responsible? Well, one of the groups that they held responsible was Christians. And so you can see how they're, you know, whereas before in the early church, you know, when you're talking about in the 30s and the 40s AD, before you have Saul of Tarsus really, for, you know, casting and, and, and perpetuating uh, actual physical persecution of Christians, they got along fine. And in fact, there were other areas of the world where they got along. And again, 70 AD seems to have changed all of that. And so, you have opposition here from the Jews. Continue in verse 9. I will make them come and bow down to your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Keep your finger in Revelation 3, and let's go to Isaiah 45. 
if you don't think God has an ironic sense of humor, this will change that. Isaiah 45, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Now, flip a page and go to chapter 49, verse 23. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Flip a few more pages to the right to chapter 60. Chapter 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all, who do, all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now my question is, to whom were these passages written? Isaiah is a prophecy, and it's a prophecy to whom? Come on, this can't be that hard. It's to the Jews. Who are these who are coming, who are going to bow themselves and prostrate themselves before the Jews with their faces in the dust? They are, use the big word, the wide word, adversaries, Gentiles. These are Gentiles coming to Jews and prostrating themselves before the Jews. Now how is Jesus using this passage? Who's doing the prostrating? The Jews, and they are prostrating themselves before whom? The Christians. Now, there are some who take this concept, and this is one of the, the uh, justifications that they would use for saying that the church has supplanted Israel and has inherited the promises that are due to the people of Israel. Now, I don't want to deal with that today. We're going to deal with that next week and probably the following week, all right? So I, want to, I don't want to get into that today other than to say that's not true, all right? But we'll deal with that specifically later. The idea here, though, is that here you have opposition, and God is saying here to this small band of believers, these people who oppose you, the day is coming when they're going to recognize that you were right, that your faith was right. They were wrong, and they're going to come and prostrate themselves to you. And so again, this is not the idea of the Jews somehow becoming subservient to Gentiles. The idea is that the Jews are realizing Jesus is the Messiah, the Christians are right, and we need to change how we view Jesus because we cannot be true followers of God and reject God himself. You cannot accept God the Father and reject God the Son. That doesn't work. And that day is coming, it is still future today. The irony of that. Now, in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, and that really the idea there of keeping the word is the idea of keeping the command. That's, the, that's the, in that particular um, syntax. It's the idea of keeping the command of my perseverance. 
I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now this is another one. We're not going to get into that this week. We are going to get into that at length next week at least. The idea here, the hour is talking about, when you hear somebody referring to the hour of, what are they referring to? It's a period of time. How long a period of time? Relatively short, right? Because we're talking about an hour. There's a lot of things that you can do for an hour. So again, it's a period of time, it's relatively short, it's a time of testing, and it's, going, it's fixing to come upon the whole earth. And the purpose of this testing is to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, this is looking at the time of the Great Tribulation. We're just going to cut to the quick here for today. We'll, we'll get into some of the ins and outs of it next week. This is talking about the, the, the Great Tribulation. And because you have been faithful in keeping the word of my perseverance, I'm going to keep you out of that time. Verse 11, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming, when I get here, it's going to be rapid. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. You guys have held on, keep on holding on. You've persevered, keep on persevering. Don't give up. You'll see a lot of times uh, when people are running a marathon, where do you seem to see a lot of people really struggling physically when they're running a marathon? It's, it's almost within eyesight of the finish line. And so his, his, his encouragement to them here, finish well. You've run well. Finish well. Keep on persevering. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. <laughs> you know what's fascinating? When you look at these and you understand the background of the city, this is one of the ways that Jesus is demonstrating how well he knows them and how well he knows their settings. You folks don't stay in town because of danger. You're afraid of earthquakes. And you've got reason to be afraid of earthquakes. Your city's been destroyed before. You don't have to worry about that in heaven. And in fact, Eliakim was going to be made like a peg. You're planted like a pillar. You're a large item. And you are planted solidly in terra firma. You don't have to worry about running out. You don't have to worry about having to get out of town for any kind of safety reason. You're planted. And not only are you going to be a pillar in the temple of my God, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. The city that was used to getting renamed for special occasions, guess what? Oh, you're going to get renamed again. But it's going to be names that you're going to bear forever. No more to have to, to worry about somebody else coming in. There's not going to be a conqueror. There's not going to be an earthquake. There's not going to be any of those things. You're going to have permanent residence with a new name. In fact, several of them. Can you imagine for this church what it would be like to get that letter? No accusation, no rebuke, just to hang in there. I have a colleague, I had a, oh, he's still alive. 
I was not present for this event. He described it to me. I know the other people who were there. They were on a medical aid call. This is many, this is 45 years ago. I will not go into all the details. It was a very messy call. And my friend was trying to render aid to somebody and it was a very difficult, difficult scene. And there were several people there trying to render aid to this person. One of them was a battalion chief. This guy's a chief officer. He's got a white hat. He's not supposed to get his hands dirty. He was on his knees next to my friend. In one hand, he had a handkerchief. The other hand was on his shoulder. And he was helping to clean things away and the whole time, he is whispering in his ear. And my friend at this point is a very young man. He's 18, 19 years old. And he's whispering in his ear over and over. You're doing a great job, kid. Keep going. I'm so proud of you. Keep it up, bud. I'm so proud of you. Over and over and over again. That is 45 years ago. I think he still remembers that. He does. And I can't imagine that it's not something dissimilar here for these people in the midst of their suffering. Their Redeemer knows he's not adding to their burden. He's encouraging them. I'm so proud of you. Keep persevering. It's not much longer. Keep going. I'm proud of you. That's the church at Philadelphia. Now you move about another 43 miles southeast from Philadelphia. 11 miles west of Colossae, and you reach the city of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea is near modern Denizli in Turkey. It has got some of the most extensive archaeological excavations of any of these churches, any of these cities that we have referred to. Now, why would it be? I'll give you a hint. Some of the other cities are very difficult to excavate because the new city is on top of the old one. Laodicea has got very extensive archaeological digs. So what does that tell you about Laodicea today? There's nothing on top of it. It's near the city of Denizli. They've had all kinds of room to go through. They've excavated the Colosseum. They've excavated all kinds of stuff. You go to Wikipedia and pull up Laodicea and you're going to be able to see a lot of what Laodicea looked like a couple thousand years ago. Laodicea is almost a sister church to the church at Colossae. You'll remember if you look at Colossians 4.16, Paul as he's writing to the Colossians, says, check out the letter. I want you, when you're done with this letter, I want you to send it over to Laodicea. And I want you to read the letter that I wrote to them. And so those letters were being sent at the same time, and uh, they were relatively close. Again, they're only 11 miles apart. Now, because they're very similar to Colossae, it is very possible that some of the doctrinal issues that were happening at Colossae were also happening at Laodicea. And you had issues in Colossae regarding the deity of Christ. The Gnostics had a, had a pretty good foothold there in Colossae. And it's possible 
that that is also going on over at Laodicea. That is a projection. I can't prove that. But it's awful suspicious because of what we're going to see here as we talk more about Laodicea. Laodicea is known for three things. Well, two primarily. No, it was three. They were a major banking center. So they're like a clearinghouse for banks. They're like the Federal Reserve of Asia Minor. They were known for their garment production. They had a lot of wool and they were renowned especially for black wool. And they had some medical knowledge there. They, they were world renowned for an eye salve. Again, remember those things because we're gonna see them here as Jesus speaks to the people in this church. Laodicea had a specific problem. They didn't have a good water source. So they got their water from Hierapolis, which is a city about six miles away, and the way that they got it to uh, Laodicea was by an aqueduct. It was actually an enclosed aqueduct that ran for six miles. The problem with the water in Hierapolis was that it came from some hot springs. Now when you have hot springs, you often have different chemicals inside. Those hot springs actually had medicinal value. You know, you could go and soak in the hot spring and, you know, recover from some different maladies. What happens when you take hot water and you ship it six miles in an enclosed tube to another location? What's that water look like when it gets six miles away and what would be its characteristics? It's gonna be dirty, it's got chemicals in it, and so it's gonna have a foul taste. And what temperature will it be? Tepid. Tepid is a synonym for what word? Lukewarm. In fact, you could tell who the visitors were in Laodicea. They actually tried to drink the local water. And what happens when you drink lukewarm water? In fact, there is a doctor in the house. What when you are trying to make someone vomit, what do you give them? Lukewarm water with a bunch of salt in it, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's the one that if you wanna make some, oh, that's what they always taught us in first aid when you didn't have Ipecac. Get some warm water, throw a whole bunch of salt in it and get out of the way. Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD. Now we talked about this a little bit when we went through the introduction. Laodicea, because it was such a rich city, rejected financial aid from Rome. They did all of their repairs themselves. Now it took 25 years in order to rebuild the city and get back to where they were before the big earthquake, before the big one. And so it was about 85 AD before they were really back up and running and clicking on all cylinders. So again, those things that we've just talked about, yeah, hold on to those because we're about to, to encounter them again. So how does Jesus introduce himself? Let's go ahead and read here. Chapter three, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is the politest version of that term. I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I, repu I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the only letter where Jesus doesn't give him at least some form of an attaboy. I know your deeds. And in fact, if there was gonna be a hand that would write to these people, it would be one of, the, one of those saying, mene, mene, tekel, a parson, right? The same words that were written to Belshazzar in Daniel. Daniel 5, I think it was. You've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. No commendation for this church whatsoever. And there's a reason for that. Now again, he's he wants to communicate clearly to these people. So he uses an example that every single person in that city would be familiar with, their water. You're not hot. Hot water has benefits, doesn't it? There's a lot of things you can do with hot water. You might be able to cook with it if it's really hot. If it's just nice and hot, you can take a bath in it, you can use it to bathe. It would have potential medicinal, I mean, you could relax and do the, uh, you know, the hot tub type of thing with it. And if it's cold, cold water's useful too now, isn't it? I love cold water, it's about all I drink. Nothing refresh, as refreshing as a nice bottle of cold water, right? But you're not hot, you're not cold, you're blah. And because you are blah, you're coming out. I'm spitting you out. And literally it's, I'm gonna vomit you. If I actually drink any, it's coming back. I'm rejecting you. What, I mean, what, what, happen, what is happening, what is your body doing when you vomit? I hate to you know, talk about that on a Sunday morning, but that's what it is. What's your body doing? Yeah, it's rejecting whatever came in, right? because it's, it's coming out and, and I'm giving it back full force, right? That's my, Jesus says, that's my response to you. Now, does that mean that somebody being cold spiritually is a positive thing? No, no, Sardis was cold. You know how Sardis was cold? Because they were dead. I've got some experience dealing with dead people. I can remember when I was a fireman walking into a place, the guy's not moving and he's not talking and he's not, he's not acknowledging that we're here and you go over and you touch him. This is back in the days before he wore gloves. And he's cold. He's not shivering. So you start adding all those things up and what conclusion do you come to? You know, you put your fingers over here and try to feel, you know, boom, 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 and there isn't one. He's dead. 
So cold is not a good thing spiritually. But how is it that being lukewarm spiritually is even more dangerous than being cold and dead? Okay, so it, it could make it because you're, you're a hypocrite. You think you're one thing when you're actually another. Who's the hardest person to reach with the gospel? Somebody who thinks he's already saved. You can be religious without being regenerate. And so when you're talking to people, again, why should I listen to the gospel? I'm already in. That's why the idea of lordship salvation is so crucial. There is an element, there is some doctrine floating around that says once you've tipped your hat to Jesus and, you know, prayed a prayer or whatever, if you don't change, if there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life, if you don't have any regard for God or God's word, that doesn't matter. You're in. Now, what's the problem for those folks? There is coming a day, right? They are going to be in that large crowd because it's characterized as many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all of these things for you? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are a whole bunch of people who think They've been on the straight and narrow. And one day they're going to find that they're not sitting on a throne next to Jesus. They're standing in front of that throne to be judged. That danger is clear and present in Laodicea. Because you say, verse 17, because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing, that's their self-assessment. And economically, it's true. They are rich. They have everything that they need. Spiritually, however, that is about as far from true as you can get. Because how does Jesus characterize them? Oh, you think you have need of nothing. You do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So all those things that you have in your town, the wealth, the medicine, the garment industry, all of that's just economics for you because you are poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You need to start taking these things that you think are evidence of my blessing on you. If you want an indictment of the health and prosperity gospel, here it is. They have all of that stuff, and they're going to hell. You need to take those things and you need to come to me 
for the things that you really need. And I'll give them to you. I'll give them to you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm not going to sweep things under the rug. I'm going to bring them to your attention. And in fact, I will discipline you. I will chastise you. I will bring punishment in order to bring you to change your ways. And why? Why do I reprove? Why do I discipline? Because I love you. I love you enough that I'm not going to leave you on the path on which you're on. And now we come to one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Where is that verse usually used? Evangelism. And in fact, you know where I hear that verse? Just about any time I go to a particular function. What do you think that function might be? Three words, three initials. V-B-S. That was in every vacation Bible school I ever had anything to do with. Because it's something that, oh, you can put this, it's a nice picture, you can put that in front of a child and, and communicate something to them. There's just one problem. That's not what this verse is about. Now I want you to go back to chapter 1. When John originally was having this vision, what did he see? He saw the Son of Man, right? In his right hand he had what? Seven stars. And he was geographically where? He was walking among seven lampstands. And those lampstands represent what? The churches, those seven churches. So, Jesus is amongst the churches. Jesus is in those churches, right? Where is he in Laodicea? Let me rephrase the question. Where should he be in Laodicea? Carry forward with that. Where, where should he be? He should be on the inside. He should be on the inside with them. Where is he? He's outside. I could do this for a long, long time. Because when it says I stand at the door and knock, knock is a present active indicative. Which means what? It's ongoing. If anyone would open up, I would go in. What is that implying about the church at Laodicea? They're a former church. Once upon a time, there were live people in that church. But there aren't any now. I asked you earlier what you thought people in Philadelphia would think when they got their letter. What do you think the Laodiceans think when they get this assessment from the Son of God? He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There's a throne coming.
Those who stand before that throne are subject to what? It's a big throne. It's white in color. And those who stand in front of it are there for judgment. You're either seated with the family or you are subject to judgment. And that judgment is final because that choice was already made. Do you see how good Jesus is here? Because what is he giving them? He's giving them time. Time for what? Time to repent. What would he be right to do? Then and there. He could judge them then and there, and he would be right to do it. And yet he gives them time. How gracious is he? And yet, in that day, his judgment will be right, it will be true, it will be accurate, and it will be final. And there will be no one who can say, I got a raw deal. It wasn't my fault. There will be no one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Questions on Philadelphia and Laodicea? Did I? My bad. Jesus' self-introduction. Okay, he introduces himself as the amen. What's, the, what's amen? So be it. When is it typically uttered? It can be truly, truly. So in the, in the Gospels, when you see Jesus say, verily, verily, I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you, it's amen, amen, I'm saying to you. Question, Dave? Okay, I saw your finger moving. Amen, amen. Typically, when is it uttered? Typically, not always. Typically. At the end. So be it, right? That's the way you see it often when Paul prays. It's, you know, it, uh, you know to him be the power and glory forever. Amen. That's why we say amen at the end of prayers. So be it. It's the last word. He's the beginning of the creation of God. How did God create? Yeah, with the first word. Faithful and true witness, that's the in-between. Jesus is the one who is faithful and true, and that is beginning to end. Now, that doesn't just refer to the content of what he says. It also applies to the direction of what he says and the accuracy of what he says. When Jesus gives an assessment, that assessment is true. It's not false, it's not doctored, it's true. And so Laodicea, when I am coming to you, I am the one who, number one, the amen, I'm God. That is also a term that's used of God. Faithful and true is a phrase that we're going to see four times, including this, three more in this book. The first one where we're going to see it is in chapter 19, verse 11. In fact, go to that one because that's the one that frankly is really important to the people in Laodicea. 
chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame, are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's the other word for crown, by the way. Stephanos is the idea of the victor's crown, the garland. This is diadem. It's, it's the Greek word for, which is transliterated to get diadem. That's the one that's for royalty. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is Jesus coming to judge. He is the one who's faithful and true. He is the one who is speaking to these people. Now in one way, that has got to be one of the most depressing endings to a passage that you can have. Jesus has written letters to seven churches. And the one that we're going to end on is the non-church. There are churches like that today. Jesus didn't specifically name false doctrine. But he sure doesn't tell them, you guys are on the right path. In fact, again, no commendation, no encouragement at all. Did you notice out of seven churches, how many of those letters would you consider positive? How many of them out of seven, did Jesus have a beef with? Five out of seven. Two out of seven, he's happy with. And those two, they're good with Jesus. They're in the midst of trouble. They're suffering persecution. I wonder if that's kind of an indication that maybe persecution isn't quite such a bad thing. And yet that's the note he ends on. That's the end of the things that are. Next verse, he's going to move into the things that happen after these things. Now, it's going to take us a little while to get to that next verse. What I'd like to do next week, and probably the week after, is um, let's, let's deal with the issue of the rapture. Is there one? And if there is one, where, when would it be? And then I think we'll probably move into then at that point too, uh, dealing with the millennial kingdom. Because again, that is, I realize we're not gonna get to that until we get to chapter 20, but it's gonna be kind of pertinent right here. Because it's gonna influence, frankly, how you interpret chapters four to 20. So I think we'll take that on here as well. Any other questions for today? Thanks for reminding me about me skipping that section. Let's pray. Lord, nobody would want to lay claim to being from Laodicea.
And yet I wonder how many people like that we have here in our own church, those who think that they're in but are not, those who have given mental assent to you but do not live for you. You are not their master. You're just an add-on. And Father, how we pray is we, is we know some of these folks. They're in our families. They're amongst our loved ones. They're amongst our friends. How hard it is to, to speak truth about sin and the need for salvation to somebody who thinks they already possess it. Yet, Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to know it, that we may obey it, that we may learn it, that we may know it, that then we can do it and teach it and proclaim it. You've left us here. We are, we're alive at this time in history, in this physical place. Help us to be faithful to you here. Rather than being like Laodicea, help us to be like Philadelphia. There's a door open to us. It's a door for salvation. It's a door for service. And you've said it here. It's open. And it's open because you've made it that way and no one can change what you've said. And so help us to be faithful today, tomorrow, this week, and perpetually until the day when we meet you. Be that coming up to meet you in the air or be it meeting you because we've gone through death. Father, help us to be faithful unto death that we may receive the crown of life. These are hard words. But Lord, let us take, it th take them to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.